Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. I read a headline this week that just was odd to me. It struck me as funny. It struck me as very strange. It read, Tennessee man secretly lives in family's attic. You don't see that as weird? I see that as really weird. I mean, I've stayed in some places in my time, some seedy places where there have been like rats or mice in the attic. I mean, that was easy to figure out like right away. I knew it. Right? It would take me two minutes just laying down trying to sleep and hear you know, the vermin in the attic. I, I knew it was there. I, I think if there was a full-grown man in my attic, I mean, he might visit my attic. He might break into my attic. He's not going to live in my attic without me knowing about it. It's just such a strange headline to me. There are some things like that that are just so, so obvious that you know when they're there and you know when they're not. In the Christian life, there is a virtue that is just that way. It may be hard to define. It may be hard to kind of point at and say, there it is. But there are evidences of it that you just can't ignore. And, and the bigger it is, the more obvious it is. And the more it grows, the more you see it. And there's just no denying it. The virtue I'm talking about is it's depicted in the last eight words in English of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians when he speaks of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, he says to, to love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love indestructible, indissoluble, with, with an, 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 an undying kind of a powerful, big, obvious love in your life. That is the virtue I'm talking about. When it's there, you see a person that loves God, you, you know it. And, and if it's not there, I mean, you sit there and wait for evidence of it and you just don't see it. And it's pretty clear it's absent. The love of God, it dominates a person's life and it, it seeps out in, in all kinds of things that they say, the priorities of their life, their actions of their life, their words. It's all clearly there or it's not. It couldn't be more basic than to say that the people of God ought to be characterized by a love for God. I mean, that is just fundamental. And yet it's hard to define. What does that mean to love God? Is this an emotional thing? Is it a commitment I make? Well, it's there, and you know when it's there, and there are evidences of it, but you, you've got to realize how fundamentally important it is and how we need to cultivate it, how it needs to be evident and obvious how we need to fuel that. And that's my job this morning in the psalm that I've chosen to exposit for you. It's found in Psalm 116. We read part of it during our worship this morning. Psalm 116. I want you to look at this psalm, and I want you to utilize this psalm as I believe God intended it to be utilized, and that is to fuel and motivate and push forward your love for God. It's broken into two sections, very simple, verses 1 through 11 and 12 through 19, two sections, and you'll see there, it just starts by a statement telling us why we should love the Lord. Certainly the Psalms is saying, here's why I love the Lord, and then how we love the Lord. He's going to say in verse 12 and following, listen, here's how I do it, and, and at the end, he really commands us to do the same. Now look at that verse, first verse. I mean, it couldn't be more simple as I love the Lord, you see capital O-R-D, which again, just remember, that's the convention in our English translations to translate the divine name, the proper name, Yahweh. So let's just be clear about that. I love Yahweh because. So here we have from verse 1 
all the way through verse 11. Here's all the reasons I love God. Then in verse 12, what shall I render to Yahweh for all his benefits to me? And that kind of tells a little bit of why he's loving God, many of his benefits, and he articulates those in the first 11 verses. But now he's going to say, what do I do in response to that? And we have in verses 12 through 19 the response. So two things, and I've broken down your outline this morning. You'll see it there in the printed worksheet into two simple sections. Here's why I should love God. Love the Lord because, and then here's how I should love God. Here are the things I should do in response. So let's just look at the first four verses here, which are very simple. Very simple, very straightforward. Of course, the psalmist has something specific in mind. It seems pretty dramatic, seems pretty big. But you can identify, I hope, with a variety of things that fall into this category. Verses 1 through 4. I love the Lord because, here it comes, he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because, I love the Lord because, verse 2, he inclined his ear to me. And therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. What was it that he inclined? Here it is. The snares of death encompassed me. It was big, life-threatening apparently. Maybe it was an illness or some kind of danger, peril he was in. The pangs of Sheol, that poetic word of the Old Testament to describe the grave, that death itself. The pangs of death or Sheol, they laid hold on me. I thought I was going to die. I suffered distress and anguish. And in the middle of all that, look at verse 4. Then I called on the name of Yahweh. O Yahweh, I pray, deliver my soul. And of course, the context is here. He did. He inclined his ear. He heard my voice, verse 1 and verse 2. Number one, if you're taking notes, and I wish that you would, jot this down, letter A, if you will. You need to love the Lord because he's answered your prayers. He's answered your prayers. I hope there's not a Christian in the room that I could ask you after this service, has the Lord answered your prayers? And you say no. And you say, well, Pastor Mike, I have plenty of prayers that aren't answered. Okay, I understand that. There are plenty of prayers. The Lord has not answered the way that you want them answered. I get that. I understand that. But understand this, that it's easy for us, and we are creatures because of our pain and the feelings we have in terms of deprivation. We're always going to easily identify the deprivation. We're going to have a hard time remembering the provision. So we've got to work at this. I'll give you an example of this. The Bible's very clear about God providing every day for us. As a matter of fact, you're told in the model prayer of Christ, we call it the Lord's Prayer, to pray this. Give us this day our daily bread. That may be convicting to you because many of you didn't even pray that prayer this week. But you should pray that every single day. God, provide my meals. Think about that. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. And since we met last week teaching in the Psalms, I'm assuming you probably had 19, 20, 21 meals. Am I right? You probably did a little more than that. I had a couple of meals I had to miss. Schedule got tough. Things got crazy. Missed one or two meals this week, at least the normally scheduled meals. Got a drawer full of snacks, so I did fine. I didn't, you know, I didn't, didn't lose any weight this week. So I was provided for, but it's easy for me, even in my week, to look back at the 21 meals I think I should have in a seven-day period and say, well, I had to miss a couple. That was a bummer. I was hungry. It's easy for me to look at the deprivation and take note of that. Just like my answers to prayer. I feel like he didn't answer this. He didn't answer the way I want it. I look at that. But think of the provision. Even if you had 15 meals this week, if you're to pray, give us this day our daily bread, God has provided you abundantly this week. And you ought to be grateful for it. You ought to recognize the Lord answers my prayer. Now, the non-Christian world is never going to get that. They're not going to pray for their meals. They think it's entitled to them. They think it's going to, they're going to figure it out on their own. They're going to provide it in their own way. And, and they don't need God for any of that. But the Bible says every single 
thing that God gives, every good thing that you receive is a gift from him. And that nothing is coming to you if God has not provided even the strength and the wisdom and the intelligence to earn wealth, he says in Deuteronomy. It comes from God. So you have all of that from God. He gives you life and breath and everything else. So you need to say every single day, God, give us this day our daily bread. And then look at God answer. And you should make the connection, even though the non-Christian world will never make that, and say, he has answered my prayer. Another thing in that prayer, deliver us from evil. You read the news feeds? You see all the evil going on in our day? You read the local paper even? Maybe some of you are drawn to the crime blotter. You start reading all the terrible things that happened in South Orange County. And I'm thinking this, most of us avoided those things. I mean, no reason that we should have. There's a lot of things that have befalled a lot of folks in our world, and it hasn't happened to you. He's delivered you from all kinds of evil. And that's true, and you ought to be praying that he delivers you from evil. And when he answers, you ought to recognize he's answering your prayers. You ought to love the Lord because he's answering your prayers. But it starts with one, Pastor Mike, it says, your kingdom come. And that didn't happen. You're right, you're right, you're right. There are prayers that we pray and God does not answer them in our time. Well, I wanted and I prayed it multiple times this week. Please, Christ, come back. And he hasn't. So I made to wait. That's a no from God this week. But how about the next line? It's a mixed bag probably. When we're supposed to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I bet you've been praying for several things that fall under the rubric of that, the category of that, that you're saying, God, I want this to happen your way in your time with your stuff and your priorities. And God has probably answered some of those. You just need to remember. That's the real challenge of the Christian life. Psalm 9 Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. And we don't recount them well enough. And if you did, guess what? You'd cultivate and fuel a love for God when you started drawing the connection between your requests and God's answers. Don't wait for some distress and anguish of verse 3, the snares of death and being on the edge of your own life, whether it's some illness or crisis. And don't wait till then to pray. Pray as you should. Feel some conviction with that simple statement. Pray every day. God, give me today all that I need. Some of the prayers that come from the 1920s, 1930s, the prayer books for children, just praying for us to go to sleep and wake up alive. I've read some of those to you recently from this platform. And and to think, God, when you do that, you're the sustainer of life. I give thanks. You answer my prayer. Love the Lord because he answers your prayers. Verse 5, gracious is Yahweh. And righteous. Our God is merciful. Yahweh preserves the simple, verse 6. When I was brought low, he saved me. Now there's a lot there. There's a lot there. But you see in this simple statement, look at the start at the bottom, verse 6. Yahweh preserves the simple. That's a nice way to put it, by the way. Simple. It's the word that's used for the foolish, the naive, the ignorant. Now we don't like to look at ourselves that way, but the psalmist is getting honest with himself getting honest about the fact that maybe even part of what he's done in his life has brought on some of the distress that he's so thankful for in in the first four verses. And he may be sitting there realizing some of this I brought on myself. I was brought low. I was dumb. I was ignorant. I was stupid. And yet the Lord saved me. I think that's what prompts verse five. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous. Our God is merciful. Now, righteous is a scary attribute of God. Perfectly righteous. The standard is set. Here is what's right. And he says, here is the right thing. And the next line, verse 6 says, he preserves the simple. The simple are not those who are abiding by the straight, narrow path of righteousness. 
It's the guy who says, I've been dumb, I've been foolish, I've been naive, I've been ignorant. Have you said that lately? If you hold yourself up to the word of God, I hope you've recognized that, that deficiency. And here's what you realize with the righteous God you pray to, two words surrounding that, he's gracious and merciful. Do you realize that? You ought to love God because that's his character. He is righteous and holy and just, but he's also gracious and merciful. Number two, you ought to love the Lord because he's been gracious to you. And you need to think about how he's been gracious to you. And maybe you need to think like the psalmist. He's been gracious to me when I was dumb, when I did something stupid, when I didn't have wisdom like I should have. I walked into a mess and the Lord graciously and mercifully forgave me. He's a gracious God. Number three, verse seven. Return, O my soul. This is the part we read during worship this morning. Return, O my soul, to your, here's a great word, circle it, highlight it, your rest. For Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. Now, I'm thinking, did you just remember what you said in verse 3 and 4? He he talked about the snares of death, the pangs of shield, suffering distress and anguish, needing to be delivered. I mean, all that looks like bad stuff. And he realizes, no, the gracious, merciful kindness of God to creatures that deserve nothing but what they have earned in their simplicity, their ignorance, their, their naivete. You know, God is a God who grants rest and he's been bountiful in giving rest when we don't deserve it. He's delivered our souls from death. The wages of sin is death. We deserve that. My eyes from tears. Look at your life. In reality, we should be weeping over that. Our feet from stumbling, the path that we've chosen so often, we should recognize that we deserve God's judgment and yet here he says return to your rest how often we've had that rest story in the news this week of a hundred cars in suburbs of denver who all drove into a mud pit because they were all following their gps on their on their phones there was a road closure and so the gps had sent them in google maps or Waze or something down this path where all these signs said road closed but they all followed each other and it went into a mud swamp and all the cars got stuck Dozens of cars had to be towed out of the swamp because they all followed ignorantly their GPS. And yet, you can just picture now the tow truck drivers coming and pulling those cars out. And I guess if you have AAA or, you know, roadside assistance or something, that's fine. But think about God who's not charging for the tow, at least not us. He's pulling us out and setting us in a place where even though we deserve wrong, we have rest, we have a fix, we have God's grace and mercy toward us. And the Bible says, like in Psalm 23, he leads us in our lives as dumb, ignorant sheep by still waters, into green pastures. He restores my soul. Think about that. We've all experienced that peace. Jesus said, I leave you this peace, John 16. Not like the world gives. I'm going to give you a kind of peace that transcends what the world has. I'm going to give you peace, an undeserved peace, a kind of rest for your soul. And he wants to get back to that. God Restore to my soul, return to my soul that rest, that rest that you so graciously give. And I hope if you're a real Christian today, you recognize that even in the midst of hard times, like the rest of Psalm 23 says, like a person who's given a table that's been set before you like a banquet, a meal, even though you're surrounded by your enemies, even though you're made to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is gracious to give peace, peace that is not set on your circumstances. You may be going through cancer, maybe going through a marital problem, maybe going through some financial crisis, but all of that, the Bible says, I'll give you peace, peace that lets you know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what is that in context? It's that contentment, the secret of contentment. I know Christ, I have peace. Number three, I ought to love the Lord because he gives that and the world does not have it. 
He's given you peace, letter C, verses 7 and 8. There's that peace I hope you enjoy and I hope you recognize it and I hope you see it. And when the rest of the world is freaking out, much like the priests in the Old Testament who were not allowed to tear their clothes, a sign of complete dejection and a sense of of hopelessness that we have as Christians in comparison to the rest of the world, a kind of peace that like Christ can allow you to sleep on the cushion of the boat in the midst of a storm. He grants peace, green pastures, still waters, taking you into places of inner tranquility and God providing that for his name's sake, as it says in Psalm 23. Some difficult verses, but interesting to understand and figure out in verses 9 through 11. The last and fourth thing here as to why he loves the Lord, not only because he answers prayer, is gracious and gives peace, but here fourthly, letter D, verses 9 through 11, I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. There's a confident statement. I will be with the Lord. I will have God's favor. I believe, I believed, I I have confidence and trust in you. And and I trust in the goodness of God, the grace and mercy of God. Even when I spoke, and this is a hard Hebrew piece of of text to translate, but I think they're right here in the ESV. Even when I spoke, I believed, I trusted. Even when I spoke, colon, quote, I am, here's the emphasis here, greatly afflicted. I'm at the end of my rope. I have no hope. And I set in my alarm, this, this strengthens this interpretation. I set in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Everyone's awful. Everyone's terrible. I'm so afflicted. That's the kind of words that we say sometimes in our angst, in our hurt, in our alarm, in our frustration, in our distress and anguish of verse 3. And yet we know this. Sometimes we say things that in a lesser relationship would end that relationship. That would hack someone off so badly, it would be done. I would ruin relationship with those words. But those words in the context of loving God, the reason we can love God fourthly here in this text is because God is a God who is so gracious. He forgives specifically in this context. He's thinking of words that should have offended God. And God instead has taken all that offense from a Christian perspective, clearly we understand, and laid that offense on Christ. And that no longer stands between me and God. God is a forgiven God forgiving God. Number four, letter D, he has forgiven your sins. Be very specific about that. And if you're feeling self-righteous this morning, turn in your minds to James chapter three and spend some time in it this afternoon and recognize this. We all stumble in many ways. If you don't stumble in what you say, you're a perfect man. You're not a perfect man. And I could point to the things that you've said this week. If I had my listening device there in your home, in your car, And I could just play here. I could pass out the popcorn and say, I've recorded everything this person has said this week. And we're going to listen now to Jim's words all week long. And I picked the most egregious things he said. Let's put them on the screen. And you'd realize this. The tongue is a deadly poison. And with it, we may sing wonderful worship songs in church. But with it, we'll tear down people made in the image of God. We'll say things that are absolutely ridiculous as it relates to the truth of a God who loves us and cares for us and cherishes us. And all of those things, you will say things completely contrary. You'll start making accusations that you should never make. All men are liars. And you know, you can take that passage and say, well, that's true. That's objectively true. Well, so often in Scripture, we don't see the objectivity. And by that, I mean the absolute objectivity of statements like that. We see the relative nature of how we live with one another. And we realize this. But that's not, that's an overreaction. In his alarm, he said those kinds of things. 
in his frustration, in his anguish, he said, I'm greatly afflicted. Now, there is someone who was greatly afflicted we've been reading about in our DBR. His name is Job. And Job comes out righteous. And even in chapter 2, it's made specifically clear to us he did not sin with his lips. At least up to the end of chapter 2, he hadn't sinned with the things he said. Much more righteous than we are. But keep reading. We got to chapter 3. He starts sinning with his lips big time. Matter of fact, we were reading yesterday and even this morning in our DVR. If you're reading along with us, and I hope that you do read along with us through the Bible every single year. And we were pondering, I hope you were pondering this morning, the words of Job. And Job was just flying off the handle. I mean, if I'm writing a commentary, that's when I put the section here. Job flies off the handle. I mean, he's saying things that are, that are absurd. In yesterday's reading, he's saying, God, you've just set me up like a target, like a kid in the backyard with a BB gun, sets up a can and shoots at it. God, that's what you're doing to me. That's the picture in that passage. Is that what's happening? Not what's happening. Oh, I know by chapter three, he's cursing the day of his birth, which is not a good thing to do. Seems like you've lost all hope. Well, it's bad. It's really bad. I got it. It's bad. His life is way worse than your life. But he's sinning with his mouth. He's sinning big time. As a matter of fact, he's accusing God of all kinds of wrong. I know that because I can read, but I also know it because at the end of the book, God steps on the scene in chapters 38 through 42, and he says this, hey, fault finder. You're going to be a fault finder with God? Come, stand up like a man. Come talk to me. So God's a little torqued at Job. And you know what Job says at that point? I put my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once. I won't answer twice. I'll shut up. Mike Fabar's paraphrase. I'll shut up. You know what happens? God takes him out to the shed and beats him. No. God forgives him and is merciful and restores his life and expresses his love and even takes the people he dismissed as miserable comforters in yesterday's DBR who were just, I'm thinking, okay, they're just trying to help Job, you said in today's reading, you don't have any friends. Here you got three friends, four by the time the book is over, who are trying to help you, and you're just steamrolling these guys. Miserable comforters are you all. And God is even willing to rebuke them. But he says, I forgive you. And clearly, that's a kind of grace that Job can say, I said in my alarm some stuff I should not have said. Hey, you may have avoided the really big sins this week in your Christian life. Maybe you haven't. But you've come into this auditorium this morning with a lot of sins in your mouth. I mean, if nothing else, I got every one of you dead to rights on that one. You've said things that are just not right before a holy God. But he's forgiven those things. Because he's faithful and just to forgive your sins if you just confess your sins. I don't care what else... I don't care what else you haven't gotten. You want to know why you should love God? Because he's taken every last sin that you've ever committed, including every egregious thing that you've said, everything that falls short of the standard of God, and he's appended those things to the cross. And he said this, I forgive you. I take all of what you are, and I put it on my son who I love. And I've taken all that I love about Christ, and I put that on you. And you are 100% qualified to inherit the kingdom of God. We got to give thanks to the Father because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What a great statement from Colossians chapter 1. And that's true of every single Christian in the room. If you're non-Christian, you're not even identifying with the sermon. I get it. But if you're a Christian, you ought to love the Lord because he answers prayer. He's been gracious to you. He gives peace and the most specific and poignant act of grace. He's forgiven you. 
He's forgiven every last one of your sins so that you can say with the Romans in the early church that Paul was getting them to say, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. I ought to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. I ought to hear, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his, and his angels. That's what I deserve and you deserve. By our words, we will be condemned, Jesus said. But I'm not going to be. How is that? Because God is gracious and merciful. And even though I've said things that I'd be ashamed for you to know, God has forgiven every last one of them. Well, how do you respond? When you think about why we love the Lord, well, here's four things, verses 12 through 19. Got eight verses left, and here they are. What shall I render to Yahweh for all of his benefits to me? That's a great question. Why should I love the Lord? We got that. We got a few things here at least. It's not an exhaustive list, but I got four things to aim at this week. Now I got four things here that express my love for God. How did he do it? Well, verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of Yahweh cup of salvation take my hands on this cup certainly it references the oblations the giving of drink offerings to god yep we'll get to that but it's a picture much like a trophy being held up because he calls it the cup of salvation here's something that god has done i've been saved in this context we're talking about at least in the immediate context the pangs of death the snares of death verse three the suffering and anguish of his soul god's delivered him Salvation with a small s. And he says, I'm holding this up. And I'm calling on the name of the Lord. Now, I got a question here, an, an interpretive question that I've got to solve. Is, is this the kind of thing that I see in verse 17 of offering sacrifice of thanksgiving? Is that, is that what I'm doing? Is that what's happening here? He's calling on the name of the Lord in terms of thanks? Or is he calling on the name of the Lord like we saw the pattern in verse 2? Because he's inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. And like he did in the midst of that situation, verse 4, then I call on the name of the Lord. Uh, oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Well, I'm going to go with that because I know here that in the immediate context, that's what he's so excited about, that God has done all of this. So he's saying this, I am going to lift up this trophy of salvation and say, look how God has answered my prayers. Here's what I'm going to do now as an expression of my dependence on God, which is nothing other than an expression of our love for God to say this, I'm going to continue hoping in you, praying for you to deliver me. Letter A, you want to know how to love the Lord, love the Lord with hopeful prayers. There's nothing that God would want more from us than to do what he asked us to do. And that is this ask ask and you'll receive seek and you'll find knock on the door why because god says look at what you're doing when you ask me for these things you're confessing by the very request that you know i'm the provider you don't even ask for your daily bread well you should why because god is the provider every meal every calorie that you've digested this week has been a gift from god every single thing the bible says the good is coming from him you ought to be asking you know, for you to wake up in the morning and say, God, give me provision throughout my day. Give me food to eat today. And not think it's because you're so smart to be able to earn a paycheck to get this done. And for you to go to bed at night and say, God, I'm going to lay down here to sleep. I want you to make me wake up in the morning like the psalmist says. You sustain me in the night. And for you to wake up and say, thank you, God, for doing that. That prayer itself on the front end, give me this daily bread. Take me through this evening. Protect me as I sleep. Those are simple prayers. And you know what those are? Expressions of love for God. It's a hopeful prayer. It's a hopeful prayer that you've answered me in the past. You're going to answer me in the future. 
Lift up the trophy of what God has done in the past and call on the name of the Lord. Keep on hopefully praying. I mean, what a good thing it is. Think about you grandparents. When a grandchild comes up and wants to ask you for something for Christmas. Think about that. The picture of you that warms your heart. The think that child knows that you're gracious and you're kind and you want to give and you want to buy something. That's a picture, surely, of a God who says, I love to give good gifts to my kids. I know that. Because he said that in the very same text that I'm quoting for you. Ask and you'll be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock the door will be open. Then he says this. You know what? What parent? What, what parent is going to have a kid come to him and ask for something and give him something bad in response to that? He asks for a piece of bread, not going to give him a stone. Right? Ask for a fish, not going to give him a snake. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to you? What a compliment it is for you to come to God and ask him for things. I know that may sound odd because we want to be self-made people. Ask God for more things. Ask him in hope, in faith. And say, God, I need you to deliver me. I need you to sustain me. You want a template? Go back to the Lord's Prayer. There's a great template for you to be praying. Hopeful prayers. Verse 14. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all of his people. If you didn't catch that, God was clear to repeat it in verse 18. Look down at verse 18. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all of his people. Well, the context at the end of this is all about the presence of all the people. And though it's repeated in verse 14, or I should say it's stated in verse 14 and then repeated in verse 18, the focus here is on lifting up this cup of salvation. I said it's an oblation. It's a a drink offering. A quarter of a hen, which is the ancient measure of liquid in the Old Testament. It's about a quart, about a liter. And they would pour these out. We saw at the very beginning of the drink offerings in the Bible, at least, of Jacob pouring out before God the oil. Oil, very precious commodity. Or we see it in the law, in Numbers, to pour out wine before God. Something that sustains you. Now, in the ancient world, you're going to drink water. Unless you're going to be blessed and be able to have the fruit of the vine and be able to drink wine. And then you're going to have something precious to you. And you're supposed to take that now and pour it out. Now, I've got to admit something you're going, to, you're going to razz me for later, but I love sweet tea. And I don't drink it very often because I know it's not good for me, so don't write me and tell me it's not good for me. And I don't just like, like half and half. I, I want the sweetest sweet tea in town. I blame my mother being from Alabama for this penchant that I have for sweet tea. But I don't get it very often. Back in the day, there was no place to get it unless you made it yourself, and I'm not going to go to that trouble. But I want to, I want to drive through somewhere, and I want to get it. And then Chick-fil-A came to town, and they have it. It's like, whoa. And then McDonald's started serving it. Yes. And they only charge you a dollar for a big one. It's not quite a, a quart, but it, it's pretty close. And I'll even admit, when Chick-fil-A came to town, I started buying the jug. They sell a jug of it. I bring it to the office. Now, this is a treat for me. I don't do it all the time. I'm trying not to do it all the time. Maybe once a week I'll have my sweet tea. Maybe twice on week weekdays. <laughs> but if I come to the office having driven through and gotten a jug of sweet tea, and I get there and someone says, are you thankful to the Lord? I says, yes, here's how thankful I am. And I go out and pour the sweet tea out in the, in the bushes. I'm thinking, wow, you must really love the Lord. Because if you tell me love the Lord, love the, pour that out. I'm not going to pour that. I'm going to think twice. I may try to be a godly man, but I, I love my sweet tea. 
It's easy for me to just go back and buy some more. In the ancient world, to take a, a quart of wine and pour it out before God and just to waste it like that, that was rough. Take oil, used for so many important things in the ancient world, and just pour it out before God. Back there in, in Genesis when Jacob builds the pile of rocks and pours out the, the oil. That's a big sacrifice. I mean, that's the commodity. That's a financial gift. Now, here's the thing you're not going to be able to avoid, much as you don't want your preacher talking about it because you don't want him getting in your wallet. Here's the thing. You're not going to love the Lord if you're not giving financial gifts. Let her be. You want to love the Lord? Love the Lord with financial gifts. And if you're going to cross your arms and get, get defensive, whatever, fine. But here's the thing. Don't tell me you love God and are not willing to give financial gifts. Matter of fact, the pouring out of the fellowship offering or the thank offering, yeah, you poured stuff out, but you also brought an animal and you had it and you gave it to the Levitical families. And the Levitical families then, they feasted on it. And some of the sacrifices, you even shared the meat and you had a feast with them. But you may not have been wanting to slaughter that animal. But you're going to slaughter that animal, you're going to burn that animal, you're going to cook that animal, you're going to have that animal, and you are going to spend it. And it'll be for the good of the community. It'll be good for the, the Levitical families. But you're giving your finances away. We're in the middle of this Compass 2020 project. It's a big project. It's a lot of money involved. And I've told you from the very beginning, I got heat for it yesterday, but I'm telling you, I'm not telling you everyone has to involve themselves in this. Although I would strongly encourage you to consider it. This is a very important thing that we're doing. Now, you're all required to give to the church. You are. That's what the Bible says. Every, Paul says very clearly to the Corinthians, you have to do this on the basis of the authority of the law of God. From the Old Testament on, you have to give those who sow spiritually into your life. You have to. Whatever that amount is, you have to do it. But then there are special projects, and he goes on in the same book to the, to the Corinthians and speaks of special projects. By 2 Corinthians, he unfolds that special project, and he speaks of that, and he says, now, I don't want you to embarrass me here. I want you to excel in the grace of giving, and I want you to give to this special project that I'm giving to in Jerusalem. That's not building a, a temple, although it was the same pattern in the Old Testament. Solomon said, we're going to build this worship center. Now, you give, you give regularly, and you give under the authority of the law, and you have to, but then there's this other gift. Those whose hearts are moved to give, come and give. I'm just telling you this. You can give from the external pressure of feeling like you have to. Or you can give, as the Bible says, from the inside. And if you love God, I'm just telling you, you're going to want to give. You're just going to want to give. I had someone this week do something very nice for me. A Christian in our church who went out of his way to do something for me. I just was so grateful for it. I came home that night, and I couldn't help but wanting to buy him something. And here's the thing. I kind of went overboard. Because I was so grateful for the way this guy went out of his way to do something for his pastor. I just thought, I want to do something and, and I want to give. And I want to financially give and something great. And so I went and I looked for something and I found it and I bought it and I had it shipped to his house. And as I'm buying it, I'm thinking, oh, I really like this. I'd like one. <laughs> and the reason I was so attracted to it is because I wanted one for a long time and I didn't have one. And I thought to myself, oh, it's too extravagant. It costs too much. It's funny how just sitting back and thinking of the brotherly love I experienced from this one saint in our church, I went overboard, at least in my own mind, and bought something I would never buy for myself because it costs too much, and I bought it for him. I mean, that's an expression 
that comes from the inside to say, I, I love, I'm thankful, I'm grateful. The oblations, the pouring out of drink offerings, the paying of vows. And certainly the vows, by the way, are special projects in the Old Testament when we say to God, this is not the obligatory tithe, this isn't the triennial tithe, this is me saying, God, I love you and I want to give you this. And I say to you, this is what I will do. It's a lot like this 2020 project. I'm just telling you, search your heart, figure it out. Think through the love that you should have and want to have, I hope, for the Lord. Financial gifts, letter C. Verses 15 and 16, precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. Well, there's a weird statement. What is that all about? Here's what it's about, verse 16. Oh, Yahweh, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maid servant. You've loosed my bonds. You've freed me. You've freed me from all this disaster that I was praying about early in this chapter. You did these things. I'm yours. You care about me. You care about delivering me. I was in, verse 3, the snares of death were encompassing me, the pangs of shield. I suffered distress and anguish, and I'm here, the cup of salvation. I'm even paying you back in a sense, not because I can pay off your gifts, but because I'm so grateful to you for what you've done. I'm paying my vows. You've loosened my bonds. I am your servant. You care about me. When I'm saying stupid things like all men are liars, I'm so greatly afflicted. Woe is me. Poor me. You must, like Job would say, you must hate me. You've just set me up as a punching bag and you're just pummeling me. God, you must hate me. I said dumb things. It's not true. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. Now, I know that's quoted today by people saying, see, when saints die, God is just so happy with that. You know, death is always an enemy. When Jesus stood by the graveside of Lazarus, he didn't go, yay, he's with the Lord now. He didn't say that. He wept. Precious in the sight of Yahweh are the death of his saints. Put this in the margin if it's not there already in your, in your study Bible. Psalm seventy-two, fourteen. Same idea, Psalm 72, 14. Your, it says, from oppression and violence, you've redeemed their lives, the lives of his people. And precious is their blood in his sight. What's that mean? They're not bleeding without you going, whoa, precious. What does that mean? This is the word that's used for special jewels, gold, precious metals, right? It's precious, it's costly. God sees it as a big deal. You don't give it without thinking about it. You don't let this happen without it being a big deal. Costly. Is the in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Here's how Jesus put it. If a bird doesn't fall from the tree, apart from the purview, the oversight, the sovereignty of the Father, don't you think he cares more about you? You're worth more than many sparrows. In other words, you're not going to die without this being a big deal to God. As Wearsby used to say, right, the death of the saints is certainly an appointment. It's not an accident, right? It's something that God does in his plan. He's numbered your days. And and that's a very important decision that God makes when you die. It's not done lightly. It's not done frivolously. Here's a perspective on yourself that's hard to have when you're saying, I'm greatly afflicted and all men are liars. It's a proper perspective about how valued and loved and cherished you are by God. Number three, letter C, I put it this way. You need to love God with a proper perspective. Think rightly. Don't sin like you did here earlier in verses 9 through 11 by thinking about yourself like Job did in the middle of the book. Think like Job did at the end of the book. Think the great God of the universe has loved me. He's cared for me. Precious, costly. In the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? Because I'm his servant. He owns me just like a master. I mean, to put it in just real stark terms, would just not want to lose his servant. 
No, the Lord doesn't want to lose his servants. If it's, it's the day for you to die, you know that's an important thing. God has thought that through carefully in his sovereign plan. Think rightly about yourself. Realize this when we're saying all kinds of terrible things, saying, woe is me. You need to think properly about the fact that we're worth to God more than many sparrows. I'm quoting Matthew 10, 31. A proper perspective. And then lastly, verses 17 through 19, I will offer to you the sacrifices of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Then the repeated verse from verse 14, here it is in verse 18 again, I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all the people. So I got a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That must be an audible thing. You're saying this stuff. You're calling out on the name of the Lord. You're paying your vows. You're paying now these financial gifts in the presence of all the people. You're glad to give it in the courts of the house of Yahweh. If I didn't get it in verse 18, here it is in verse 19. It's a public thing. In your midst, O Jerusalem. I'm not in the corner in the cave in the desert or in the fields of Bethlehem. I'm doing it out in the open. I'm out here thanking God, giving to God, praising God in the presence of all the people. The people are hearing from me about it. As a matter of fact, I'm calling people to do the same. Last line, praise the Lord. That's a command. You guys all praise the Lord. Just like you have something really good that is so great to you. And you say, look, isn't it great? In this piece of art that I just bought, isn't it a great thing? Look at Johnny, man. He hit that home run. Wasn't that great? And I had this great, about this great car. Isn't it great? Look at it. Isn't it great? You praise it too. It's the boasting about God. Matter of fact, Driver Brown and Briggs, the classic authoritative lexicon of the Old Testament, this word praise, hallel, it means to boast, to be boastful. I know boasting is just such a bad word to brag. It's because people are always bragging on themselves. The Bible says, hey, bragging is great. You just need to focus in the right direction. Brag about God. Brag about the Lord. Jeremiah 9 is quoted twice by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and that is, let him who boasts, you want to boast about something? Boast in this. Boast in the Lord. That's the fourth thing. Boast about God. Boast about Him. You want to love God? Boast about Him. Praise Him in front of other people. It's a real bold way that this ends. Look through this whole psalm real quick. 19 verses. I this, I that, I this, my soul, my stuff, my eyes, my feet, my stumbling, I said, I, 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 I. And then the bottom line, which is one Hebrew word, hallelujah. Hallel, hallelujah. Hallel, you praise, you is the second person pronoun, masculine plural. You all praise Yah, Yahweh. And that's really bold kind of pushy done all these look at what god's done for me you praise the lord you guys it all flips on the final word in hebrew praise the lord calling others to thank god for answered prayer seems a bit pushy but it is so appropriate we're to call one another to praise the lord we're to tell people you need to be thankful you need to praise god for what he's done he says i'm going to do it in the midst of everybody I'm going to be bold and risk being pushy this morning with you. I'm going to call you to see something that is an answer to the hope-filled prayers of many people. It's a summation of Psalm 116, verse 2 that we've just read. Because he's inclined his ear to me, therefore I'll call on him as long as I live. There's two aspects to this. I want you to be grateful for the answer to the prayers of many people, and I want you to pray with me about the good of what God is going to do for us corporately. 
I'm going to ask you to praise the Lord with me.